every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. Uh, and joining me tonight, all the way from France, uh, is ethicist and philosopher and soon-to-be-published author, uh, Matthew Cravat. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. How are you, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. Um, so I started a rumor at the end of the, my previous podcast that uh, you mm -hmm. had learned everything you know about America by watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Please tell <laughs> yeah, me that's, that's true. Uh, more or less. I mean, until I, I went there. Um, yeah, I got into Buffy when I was about 10 or 11, and actually my family... Uh, acted as a guest family for American students who wanted to come to France and, you know, study French in Paris. Um, and one of the students, so I was like 11, she was 20, was a Buffy fan. And um, she actually introduced me to American series. We bonded over watching Friends and Buffy. And uh, as time went, went on, I um, asked for less and less Friends and more and more Buffy. <laughs> um and so, yeah, um, once she was gone, so we hadn't gotten through the whole show, but, um, you know, and at 11, I had very little money of my own, but uh, through birthdays and whatnot, I managed to um, collect all the DVDs and watch them out of order. Um, and so, yeah, when I got to what uh, high school, I switched to watching them in English rather than French. Um, and that is mostly how I learned English. Um, so I had to be careful to listen to both Buffy and Giles because they don't speak the same, right? right. Um, so yeah, but, uh, and then I actually came to America, I lived one year. Um, so it's not only Buffy now. Uh, but yeah, thing is I literally grew up with this show and those characters and uh, I know them pretty well. Well, that's amazing. Um, and I, your, your English sounds great. I, when I made the joke that you had learned everything you know about America by watching Buffy, I was, uh, I ha we had not spoken at that point. I had not heard mm -hmm. your voice at that point. So I, I liked to imagine that you were going to be speaking in, in sort of Buffyisms. <laughs> in uh, Buffy speak. In Buffy speak. Yeah. Just with a French accent. I would, but, uh, no, you, you sound great. And I will apologize ahead of time. I am an ignorant American who doesn't know. <laughs> I do not speak any French. So you sound amazing. Thank you. Uh, so uh, when I was asking sort of 
um, when we were talking before the show and I was asking kind of what your background was, you mentioned that uh, you are not currently, you have not yet been published, but you did tell mm -hmm. me that you're working on um, a piece about uh, the higher about hierarchy and the theme of war in Buffy for a forthcoming collection. And you mentioned that um, that project is going to be run by Ensley Guffey and Samira Natkarni. And uh, I've met Samira, but I am good friends with Ensley. So I'm excited to hear that. Oh, you, okay. So uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's actually well underway. Um, as far as I know, people have written the articles. They're done, but uh I mean, they are being sent or or will be sent soon to the publisher and there's back and forth. And so publication uh, won't happen for a few months, uh, probably. Uh, so, yeah, that's where we're at. And uh, the theme of the book in general is about war in the Widden verses. Um, yeah. That's very cool. That's very cool. So can can I ask? Uh, you don't have to give details. You don't have to spoil your entire thing. But. Were you, were you writing about like General Buffy from later seasons or? Um, so I actually did two things in that article, sort of. Uh, the first thing was uh, I explored the themes of, you know, hierarchy and leadership. Um, but, you know, that's, I mean, I'm not going to go into detail here. Um, the thing is, it's not rocket science that Buffy and Buffy characters have problems with figures of authority. Right. Um, so yeah, that was. I tried to substantiate that claim by you know backing it up with evidence, precise analysis. The second thing that I did um, was more specifically about season seven because it's the one that talks about war the most. Right. Um, and um, I tried to you know. Um, capture the vague feeling that I had that uh, something wasn't right with all that war speech and the spirit of the show in general. Um, and so, well, basically my point is that uh, even though Buffy talks a lot about war in season seven, um, this it's mostly rhetoric and speech and that does not describe accurately what is happening in the show. Um, yeah, that's a primer. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So, uh, I do not have my sort of calendar of scheduled podcasts open in front of me. And I can't remember if you had uh, requested any season seven episodes, uh, to join me on the podcast, but if you haven't, uh, it certainly seems like I need to have you back on so you can talk more in depth about that stuff when we get to it. Yeah, sure. Um, I think I'm scheduled for Angel um, okay. and uh, mostly season five. Um, so, yeah, so that's but But yeah, I can be back anytime. It, it'd be a pleasure because um, I love talking about Buffy and, you know. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, I, sh I should have uh, used that as our segue into spoiler territory. But first, just because you mentioned. This oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, for this other uh so the project you mentioned, I just, I can't let it pass by without me telling you how super excited I am about, um, you told me that you were working on a project about Miyazaki and Ghibli films. Right. I'm that, that is awesome. I cannot wait to hear more about it. We don't have to talk about it here. This is a Buffy podcast, but I will absolutely want to talk to you about that. Cause I adore uh, Miyazaki and Ghibli films. So. 
Sure, and uh, I mean, I haven't checked it out yet, but I've seen uh, you You also did a podcast on The Last Airbender, right? Oh, yeah. Because I, I love that show. Uh, the Avatar Returns, and uh, it's one of the things I am most proud of. I, I've been doing podcasts for over a decade, and uh, for some reason, the the series that we did on uh, Avatar and Korra is like the thing that we got the most sort of impact from the most response from listeners from and and uh i'm a huge fan of both of those shows and i'm very proud of that podcast so yeah absolutely check it out and let me know what you think yeah i think it's kind of like buffy you know it's very um sort of deeper than it looks um it's very meaningful entertainment and i'm not surprised that people you know who are fans of this show uh, would be happy that there's a platform to actually talk about it and analyze it yeah we uh we sort of ran out we had been covering uh like the comics and tie-in materials uh of both shows there are several comics and tie-ins to avatar and then uh cora has just started putting out uh some graphic novels uh we haven't done an episode in a while and my my cohorts and i keep talking about reasons why we need to pick up the mic and get back to it because we loved talking about that stuff so it, it may be coming back right now. It's a finite podcast. It has a beginning, a middle and an end, but there may be more in the future. So, all right. Anyways, enough about that. I wasn't, uh, I didn't bring you here to pimp my other wares, but thank you for bringing <laughs> that up. Um, so I guess I need to get the spoiler warning out of the way. Now conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy, the vampire slayer and angel, the series all the way through at least once you press pause on this podcast and go do that. Um, and since I'm sure everybody listening has already done that, Matthew, if you're ready, uh, let's go to work. All right. Let's go to work. <laughs> All right. So uh, this time around, we're talking about three episodes. We're going to be covering 316 Doppelgangland, which is a weird uh, word to say out loud. Uh, 317 Enemies and 318 Earshot. So yeah. we uh, have a work cut out for us. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a bit that happens in these three episodes. So let's <laughs> start off with Doppelgangland. Uh, Matt, what do you what do you feel about this episode? Well, um, this episode is the primary reason I volunteered for that episode of the podcast because it's one of my favorites um, of the show. So um, I think it's really interesting in several ways. Um, there's a development of Willow's character who has a great character arc. She's actually one of the people who changed the most over the course of the series. Um, and it's done by exploring, um, I mean, the, the theme uh, that I think is pretty prominent in Buffy in general, uh, the theme of the double. Um, and that's, well, pretty prominent in Buffy in general, uh, but especially in season three, uh, which is just so chock full of, you know, doubles and, and counter counterparts and foils. Um, and we're going to be talking about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm so glad you started off there. Like one of, one of my final notes that I wrote down about this particular episode is that uh, one of the things this show loves doing um, is doubling and mirroring um, its characters and themes. And, 
So in this particular episode, we have kind of the obvious uh, doubling of Willow and Doppel Willow or Vamp Willow, whatever, yeah. however, however you want to refer to her. Um, like that's pretty clear. Uh, but there's also dealing like this season as a whole is also dealing with the doubling, the mirroring of Faith and Buffy. Absolutely. And as of these three episodes, as of this episode and the next one, Enemies, uh, Faith has joined forces, has kind of become the ward of the mayor, uh, which means that now gives us kind of the mirroring of the mayor and Giles, since Giles is Buffy's watcher and the mayor is now, I mean, kind of the watcher of Faith. So. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true. That is actually in my notes that I'm looking at. Uh, and so, yeah, you have this uh, mirror, like dark relationship between the father figure and, and the daughter figure. Um, and I, I think we'll definitely be talking about that more in Animes. But, um, um, but yeah, I feel like uh, just like Bad Willow, Vamp Willow is, uh, you know, Willow's uh, undisclosed desires and dark parts. Um, Faith kind of acts like acts like that to Buffy's character too, um, and um, so so yeah. But Doppelganger is such a finely structured episode. I every scene has its place. It's it's just brilliant. Um, and yeah, I I guess the well the reason it's so important in Willow's character arc is that um, as the the first scene shows the open. Uh, you know, it's about emotional control. She has that. Uh, she has that pencil floating around, and when she uh, she starts talking about faith, she starts to pretend that she's fine, but she's not, and the pencil betrays her, um, sort of. Um, and emotional control, um, power on the one hand, power that she's afraid to unleash and control over herself and the trade-off, the balance between the two, for me, is really Willow's character arc, like throughout the course of the entirety of the show, right up until the end of season seven. Yeah. And uh, Willow, just like all of the characters, will have uh, successes and failures, like ups and downs in that journey along the way. But uh, so I... I just previously, I, I like practically just got off the mic with James Rocha, who was my guest for the previous episode, a little, uh, behind, oh. a little behind the scenes for people because of scheduling snafus. I'm kind of recording podcasts more or less back to back. So I, I feel like I was literally just talking about bad girls and consequences. Hmm. Um, and in consequences in particular, there was a fantastic uh, willow, moment when willow once again where where allison hannigan once again had the opportunity to have her heart broken on screen right <laughs> uh and uh that is super powerful like i love allison hannigan and i think she is one of the best actresses one of the best actors on the series uh right that would be uh i mean she's she gets a little overshadowed sometimes in a lot of the commentary as far as acting goes but she is phenomenal and so any opportunity where she gets to express uh extreme emotions i'm always down for and that was very heartbreaking in consequences seeing her in the bathroom like crying over 
over the Xander thing again. Uh, but then this episode kicks off with, uh, you know, we're back to freaking adorable kind of goofy Willow, um, where she's, t- like you said, she's working on her emotional control while she does magic with, with floaty pencils and stuff. Uh, but she still gets hyper and wants to go to the espresso pump and get sugared up on mochas. And mm-hmm. it was, she's so precious. She's so adorable in that scene. I, I, I'm glad that we bounced back from heartbreak Willow to goofy Willow. And then, obvi- yeah. and then obviously we get, uh, we get vamp Willow in this as well. Who's also, I guess goofy. She's, she's a, she's comic relief in her own way, I suppose. <laughs> um, well, yeah, well having, um, having watched vamp Willow and having watched, uh, animes right after, um, for the purpose of this podcast, uh, I couldn't help comparing um, Vampire Willow to Angelus. Um, and it, it just struck me how, as a vampire, Willow is so, you know, um, how would you say, like, nonchalant. Mm-hmm. Like, Angelus gets really energetic and, and ready. He's, he's very excited to do evil, and he obviously takes such pleasure in it. Um, and Willow is just sort of, you know, cruising through life. Um, and I think that's interesting that um, she's probably the only vampire character we know of that's less energetic than her actual um, living, breathing incarnation. Um, and that that probably says something about her state of mind, about you know who she is, because you know it's uh, the vampire part is all and encapsulates what she represses and doesn't want to think about. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really been thinking of her in those terms, but I think um, like on the, on the surface, I think maybe the, when the writers were sort of crafting these characters, I think what they try to do uh, when they give us like vampire versions of our beloved characters or whatever, is they try to, contrast like they take so so like angel when he's his normal broody self is really quiet and and restrained and and controlled and so when we get to see him as his vampire self he's obviously unleashed and he's manic and giddy and very excited and jokey you know in the darkest imaginable way and since willow is typically so awkward and sort of flailing and uh and, and a little bit hyper when they want to show us a different aspect of her, they make that character very controlled and restrained and, um, and, and forceful, but that's true. But the thing with both Willow and Angel is that there are characters who have a huge, um, super ego, I would say, who are trying really hard to hold back and contain something in themselves. Um, and when you contrast that with someone who's really not in that situation, say Cordelia, um, I mean, we haven't seen her, but if we got vampire Cordelia or vampire Harmony, um, they're not such, um, you know, they're not so different from their actual selves. And I think that's because becoming a vampire just unleashes a part of you. And so the people who in life with a conscience, with a soul, uh, work the hardest to restrain themselves or the people who change the most. Yeah, no, that's great. That's very good. Um, 
So what uh let's talk about Vamp Willow then. I guess like what I can't remember. I don't think we see Vamp Willow again. Is that true? I, I honestly can't remember if we get like a, a a flashback or another alternate reality where we get to see her again. But um, no, I'm pretty sure that only two episodes are The Wish and Doppelganger. Yeah. Okay. So, were you on your first watch? Were you happy that Vamp Willow came back? Like, were you? <laughs> we're not that far okay. removed from The Wish. I think we're only a handful of episodes past The Wish. So. Um, we didn't have to wait seasons to get her back, but were you happy that they brought her back? I was thrilled. <laughs> no, honestly, uh, Willow is uh, one of my favorite characters. She's probably like top one, um, you know, along with Spike, maybe. Awesome. <laughs> but yeah, but um, so I was really happy because it's not just you know um, bringing her back to. Uh, to play some more with that idea. It's to explore character and, um, well, Willow, after the episode, is not really the same as she was before. Uh, in that episode, she takes a step forward uh, toward constructing her identity. Um, and um, I think Vampire Willow is really useful in that because it's not, I mean, uh, it's used as a way to explore a lot of things that as I said, Willow's repressing, and it's not all bad, because sure, Vamp Willow is evil, um, but she's also much more central, and, um, you know, Willow's been uh, clearly, like, shying away from her own sexuality, and I think that having that encounter with her doppelganger is um, maybe plays a role in uh, helping her have that first sexual encounter with Oz at the end of the season. Um, and it's the first time she realizes she might be into women. Right. Um, so, so yeah, let's talk about that. There's the moment where after the gang has realized that there are two Willows right now, um, Willow gets that great line. That's me as a vampire. I'm so evil and skanky and I think I'm kind of gay. And Buffy, of course, says, just remember, a vampire's personality has nothing to do with the person that was. Yeah, an angel. And angel's like, well, actually, and just kind of leave it at that. But so mm. in hindsight, a lot of people take that to mean, you know, this was foreshadowing what the changes that uh, Willow is going to go through and the, what she's going to learn about herself. Um, Jane Espenson, I think it was Jane Espenson, has claimed that um, when this was written... Joss didn't know he was going to do that. So this wasn't at the time an intentional foreshadowing. It was just a fun little sort of quirk to throw in there. But regardless, it has become a moment of foreshadowing for the character. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, I think, you know, when you have such believable characters and, uh, you know, they're so explored in depth, at one point they start to write themselves so even if it wasn't uh, conscious foreshadowing, I don't think it's. Um, I think it's still significant, and we uh, and it's cemented in that significance by the fact that uh, in Tabula Rasa season six we get a callback to that uh, when Willow, you know, uh, loses her memory and starts finding herself together with Tara, um, she starts to freak out and think 
I, and I think I'm kind of gay. And she says the same sentence. Yeah. I think it's all back. Yeah. Um, and of course, I mean, this episode's all about Willow, but of course that just puts me, uh, one, one of my massive, uh, grindstones that I cannot shut up about is the fact that, uh, is the nature of vampirism and good and evil and stuff on this series. And that, um, it, it will become increasingly apparent to anyone who somehow has managed to avoid this, that I am obsessed with what makes spike a good character and um the idea that uh you know vampires aren't that things without a soul aren't inherently evil and people with soul things with souls aren't inherently good and that uh you know vampires have the the ability to be good and evil just like humans do um and so angel it's played as a joke in this scene uh, but of course, Angel gets the well actually line uh, where he's about to correct them that, you know, the notion that a vampire is completely removed from the personality of the human that came before is, is a, that's an oversimplification. Yeah. Um, well, there's been a big back and forth about that lore uh, on the show. It's kind of unclear. Uh, as are many things, I think that general mythology of the show is not very well defined right and i and i think the writers just don't care um, yeah yeah no they I, I think the writers try I, i've talked about this on the show before the writers i think try to use it more as uh, for an access into metaphor uh, yeah. they're not they don't mean everything to be taken quite so literally but there are times where they want their they want to have their cake and eat it too where they they want us to just relax and you know the whole uh, mystery science theater 3000 thing where it's you know it's just a show calm down and <laughs> don't, don't take it so seriously but then every once in a while they'll they want us to really pay attention to the specifics of dates and what vampire nature really is and how he couldn't possibly be a good person because he's a demon or whatever so yeah yeah i just think that you know um one of the hardest parts of being a buffy scholar and analyzing it is that um, you have to, you know, keep straight which metaphors refer to what, and um, they're kind of jumbled. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, I, I think it's always kind of significant in metaphory. Here, I, I've done a Buffyism metaphor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks. So, um, but uh, different episodes like have their topics and according to the topics you might your metaphors might change gears mm -hmm. so i think the the significant unit is the episode more than the series as a whole yeah uh when it comes to metaphors at least but my, my take on um on you know vampires and souls and good and evil um i'm i don't think i would say that vampires can truly be good without a soul uh, but they can certainly be complex and uh, like um, like Drusilla says we can love quite well if not wisely it's mm -hmm. a great um, line one of my favorite lines yeah so, so great um, but so uh, uh, to me uh, the soul the soul represents both a moral compass um, and uh, the possibility to change like if you have a soul, you might wonder 
um, what is good and evil and why should I, um, you know, you, you might have the impulse to do good. You still have a choice. You can definitely have a soul and, and be, do evil things. Um, but I don't think you can not have a soul and truly change better yourself for, uh, for its own sake in the show. Yeah, my my instinct is to push back against that, but I you you may be right. I I, I can't think off the top of my head because I I also argue the fact that not all demons are soulless. Um, but oh, who yeah. know who knows? Like like you said, the the show plays fast and loose with some of its own rules, so we don't need to get into all that right now. But um, I mean this this episode's about Willow, but let's also talk about faith. Uh, faith in Wesley, because it was, it, even though I, I knew that there was more faith in Wesley to come in this season, obviously more faith to come in this season. And, and, uh, I must've known there was more Wesley. It still was interesting to me to revisit for the first time. And I don't know how long it's been, uh, to go from consequences where we had Wesley, um, you know, try to capture or capture faith and try to turn her over to the watchers council. And obviously faith did all the bad things that she did. And then in this episode, Wesley is kind of back with the group and he's, uh, he's working with faith and everybody see, obviously she's, yeah. she's under investigation or whatever. She's back on a provisional basis, but that was just a weird moment when, uh, all of a sudden faith and Wesley come walking into the library, uh, after working out. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that uh, because the episode uh, focuses so much on Willow and, you know, it's an exploration of character as there are some, like the Zeppo, like um, some later episodes in season five, for example. So um, this is Willow's hour in the spotlight and it kind of um, just interrupts all other uh, plot lines going on. Mm -hmm. And so while it is a great episode and one of my favorites. It definitely kind of, uh, you know, breaks the rhythm of uh, the greater narrative arc of season three in that sense. I agree. Yeah. Um, so oh, I just saw one of my notes and I was going to say something and now I can't remember what it was. Um, oh, I did like Faith calling Wesley Princess Margaret. I thought that was funny. Um <laughs> How about Faith and the Mayor? Let's talk about Faith and the Mayor. Uh, when we left off in Consequences, we just got that uh, that twist ending where she went to join the mayor, and here's where we start to see how that pairing is going to work. Uh, what are your thoughts on the two of them together? Uh, well, every scene is just such a joy to watch. Um, like, I, it's like you, you know that there's something... Uh, well, the, going back to Souls... The mayor explicitly doesn't have one, um, and you could ask, you know, does he truly love faith? What's going on between them? But I think it's really, um, it it's still something you can't help but feel, you know, um, uh, touched by. Um, I think it's, it's quite heartwarming. Um, while, I, you know, it's something faith really needs. Um, She's had that uh, father figure that she's never really had. Uh, plus, you know, she's had a lot of problems with men, like in her relationships with men. 
she has trouble considering them other than sexually. And uh, the mayor is one character that is not interested in her sexually, and that does her some good, I think. Um, and they have that, that talk with them. She, she's actually she, she looks so childish, and I think that's a good uh, reflection, like in uh, the mirroring relationships, Buffy Giles, uh, Mayor, um, Mayor, and Faith. Um, I think Faith lets out her inner child when she's with the mayor. Um, she has a PlayStation and she's happy. She jumps on the bed, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and at the same time, the mayor is casually talking about killing Willow. Um, so I think wonderful performances too by both actors. Um, yeah, it's, I, I just love those scenes. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of one of the joys of the mayor, one of the reasons why I was just talking about this with somebody today um, who is watching Buffy for the first time so they can listen to this podcast. <laughs> huh. um, and uh, they were asking about the mayor and, and uh, mentioning the fact that uh, the mayor seems to be a favorite among fans. And I, I think that's indisputable. I think a lot of people would point to as in terms of favorite, big, bad favorite villain. Uh, the mayor is probably pretty high on most people's lists. And one of the reasons for that maybe the biggest reason for that is uh how is the very uh Weedonian, uh contrast between the horrible things that he does and says and the very chipper uh 50s tv sitcom way he says it <laughs> so like he's he's committing acts of of horror while he's talking about loving um family circus and he's He's being genuinely kind uh, to Faith, probably like overtly kinder and more pleasant to Faith than anybody in her entire life, while he's casually talking about the fact that they're going to kill her friends. Um, yeah, so we as viewers can see that it's not it's not a healthy relationship in the sense that, um, you know, talking about killing your friends and someone pushing you to do that is not good for you in general. Um, but um, I don't think the mayor is using faith or manipulating her um, sort of. He, I think he's genuine in his affection. He's just that he doesn't know how to love any better. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, actually, the, 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 what you said about him being all chipper and joyful and, you know, um, <laughs> uh, that way, just um, I was reminded of that in the scene of, enemies uh, where he's talking to the very um, grim um, um, the, the guy the, the demon guy who does his magic right yeah um, so the guy doesn't take mint um, he speaks only as much as is strictly necessary and um, at that point he looks like a bad guy um, but more traditional bad guy right uh, and in front of him, the mayor is like up to his hijinks, and uh, it's really it's it's nice to watch. You sure you don't want to mint? They're low calorie. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? But no germs, no germs, no germs. Yeah, I I loved when when Angel pretending to be Angelus is like, so you're you're uh, <laughs> impervious to harm, but you're scared of germs, or what? I can't remember how he phrases it, but I was like, yeah, that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, one thing that surprised me, um, I mean, it's still enemies. I guess we're just going from one episode to the next, but... Yeah, we can, uh, jump. We can jump around. Yeah, so one thing that surprised me uh, in the, the mayor and fate relationship is that they have this talk, you know, when he, he gives her a glass of milk to cheer her up. Um, and um, and at the, at the end, he casually, like, threatens her. He says... Uh, you know, replacing Mr. Trick was sure enough, uh, and I, I felt that was kind of out of place or out of character. Um, I, I don't know. I completely agree with you. I'm glad you said that because I also, I also, I had no memory of that. I, I never, I don't remember any time where, like the, the. I don't even think it's a facade. I agree with you. I think his feelings for her are genuine. So, but, but like, I never remembered there being a time where he sort of let down the, the friendly father figure act in quotes or whatever, and like overtly threatened her or strong harmed her into doing something. So yeah, that was a very weird moment for me. Yeah. I think that the mayor is, um, he kind of looks like, uh, you know, um, their relationship is an abusive relationship, in fact, um, but not, it, it doesn't jump, uh, you know, it just jump in your face in season three, um, but I think it's uh, really more obvious in season four when uh, he both cares about her enough to leave her tape when she wakes up mm-hmm. in the hospital. Uh, but also in that tape, he says basically, basically, if I'm gone, if I'm dead, uh, you have no one else in your life, uh, no one to live for, and you're done, and just jump out of your life. And that's really not a healthy thing to say, to someone, <laughs> no, you know. No. Um, but in retrospect, I think it sheds light on some of their season three interactions. Yeah. All right. Before we leave. Uh doppelgangerland behind let's jump back to willow and and talk about um both versions of willow um we get yeah. some we get some fun just regular willow lines like when um we get to see the gang react to thinking that their friend has been turned into a vampire and they're all very upset about it although it is even in their pain and horror we're still allowed some jokey moments like when Xander's like she really was better than me, and Giles is like much, much better. Than you. Yeah, I mean every scene is hilarious in that episode. That's what's so great about it. Yeah, uh, every scene has some moments. I mean, one of my personal favorites is, um, you know, when Angel bursts in and Willow's dead. Hi, Willow. Yeah, and, uh, and, yes. and you know. Giles is clear dumbfounded and Xander says, can you believe the Watcher's Council let this guy go? Yeah, he's, that's great. That's great. Uh, but like in that scene when everyone is so horrified that Willow's dead and she walks back in and they're all hugging her or whatever, she doesn't know what's going on. And uh, she's like, uh, it's really nice that you guys miss me. Say, y'all didn't happen to do a bunch of drugs, did you? It's <laughs> a, yeah. a great line. It's a great line. Um, and... Uh, so th- we haven't said anything about Anya. I'm not, there's not an awful lot to say about Anya in this episode, other than the fact that it is, it's important to note that Anya has come back. Um, yeah. and I, 
I don't have a clear memory of how long it is before she kind of becomes a little more integrated with the group, but this episode does end with her um, sitting with the group. I mean, I guess she's kind of helping to perform the, to recast that spell. I don't, I don't think she's in the next two episodes. I don't remember seeing her in the next two episodes, but the character of Anya is now back. She is, she's established as being as, a quote-unquote student at the school, so... Yes, um, well, I think that's... Uh, I actually don't know why she stayed, uh, at what point the writers decided to have her as a recurring character. Um, I think by the end of the season, they tie her in with the group uh, under the, like, uh, with the argument that she has witnessed an ascension, um, plus uh. she's getting attractive to Xander and they're both those things and um, but yeah she's kind of an outsider sort of inside the group I don't know more more so than Cordelia uh, clearly I, I don't have an awful lot to say about her either yeah I mean at this point there there was a fantastic paper given I've never just adored the character of Anya I don't have any problems with her but she's just not one of the characters I think of when I think of my favorites but at the most recent Slayage conference, there someone gave a fantastic paper on the importance of her character and the arc that she goes through across the series, and like it brought me to tears. It was a great, it was a great paper. But oh. at the moment, I thought it was just worth mentioning that Anya has come back now. Um, yeah, there's, I there's wonder... not a lot to say about her yet, but Anya is in the picture now. So, I, I think Anya is kind of evolves according to whatever writers uh, need her to do yeah. like um, I was watching the other day I was watching season 5 um, episode 2 The Real Me which is kind of Dawn's introduction uh-huh. and uh, at one point Anya is playing the game of life and uh, she's burdened with so much cash and she doesn't know what to do with it and I think it's from that point on that she realizes she's winning cash equals good right. um, and she becomes all obsessed about money she wasn't before that um, and um, yeah, I think I, I wonder actually, doppelgangerlines, if the writers were already thinking of Angel, um, because the one of the main things Anya does in season four is to take over for Cordelia um, by being, you know, the honest, straightforward person who right. just tells whatever's on their minds. Yeah, the person without a filter between their brain and their mouth. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't but know. She it's, doesn't it's come across that way yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it is a little weird to see the early incarnation of Anya, who seems, um, I don't know, a little more put together. Like she can, she she can, she can speak normally to people in a crowd uh, in her first couple appearances, and then later, as the writers figure out what they want to do with her, she becomes much more awkward and and. Uh, doesn't really know how to speak the human language as well, but yeah. At any rate, uh, like we've said, not not much about her in this episode. But uh, uh, I brought her up mostly because I wanted to mention the whole spellcasting thing, uh, which is how we get the premise of Doppelgangland in the first place. Um, this episode is significant for Willow going forward, not only because there's that whole hint about uh, you know, well, actually. Uh, but also because this yeah. is her, she 
actively she is looking for opportunities to push her magical skills and when she gets this opportunity it's telling that she's the one that recognizes too late as it turns out but she's the one that recognizes that hey this is i like my magic black but this is too black even for me yeah um but there are consequences that come out of this now i was all prepared to say uh you know to point out the fact that because of this spell at least one person that we see probably more but at least one person dies in the bronze as a direct result of this spell um mm, and that's you. that's a thing that n- I guess you could lay the blame on Anya for that one, since it was her idea to cast the spell. But still, Willow was involved in that. Willow performed the spell. It's actually Willow's mistake, although they never address this in the episode. It's Willow's mistake, spilling the sand on her hand, that calls Vamp Willow into the world. Yeah, that is a good point. I never never really thought about it that way. Um, But... Yeah, there has been a person dead, and I think we see her again. Uh, she's a, a vampire that tries to seduce Riley at one point in season four, I think. For Sandy. real? For I, real? I the think gir- so. The girl, the vamp check. willow bit? Yeah. That's amazing if that's true. That is, that's amazing. We, um, we'll definitely have to check, but, but yeah, I think um, it's an important um, you know point for Willow, uh, but just... As you said, not just because of, uh, you know, uh, well, actually, it it's, goes way deeper than that. Um, magic is certainly one, um, the start of her journey to empowerment. Um, and basically, well, let me go back uh, for a minute on Willow's character arc overall. Um, so I think, as I said, she's a very controlled character. Uh, in Halloween season two, you get this line that um, she just she doesn't want to unleash uh, what she doesn't want to unwind because she's afraid of what might come out uh, when she gets unhinged. Bad things happen. Is her belief, mm-hmm. um, and um, with magic, we later see that can be true. It's not entirely unsubstantiated. Um, but uh, her problem is not knowing, not accepting who she is. Um, you also get allusions to that in Restless, in her dreams, uh, that she's afraid that everyone's going to find out that she's still the nerdy Willow. Um, so um, accepting herself, knowing who she is, and striking a balance between her control and her inner power um, is really her um, her problem, and I think the first uh, first three seasons maybe are on the side of control. Uh, then season four, five, six are on the side of power and uh, loss of control, and that's uh, mainly through magic. So doppelganger is really a step here. Yeah. Um, and at the end, uh, only when she has this like white goddess apotheosis moment does she finally strike a balance uh, and become whole, become one. Um, something uh, Xander says in season seven too, when they um, visit Tara's grave, is he talks about a hammer and coconuts and you know power trade-off. It's a power control. It's a trade-off, um, and that really encapsulates Willow and so the reason I think 
doppelganger is so important to her character is that not only does she come to acknowledge her dark half, uh, her ex the existence of those impulses within her, but she, um, you know, both willows try to uh, impersonate the other. Um, the dark willow tries to act like good willow, and good willow tries to be the vampire and intimidate the other vampires into, you know, uh, not killing people, whatever. Um, so there's really this integration of character. She um, becomes conscious of every part of her psyche and brings them together. And um, I think that is the step, the significant step that she takes. Yeah, yeah I, I love the the conflating of the two characters. Um, you Earlier we were talking about the mirroring of the two and another example of another interesting example of the mirroring between them is we get uh, two line deliveries uh, vamp willow at one point when she, when she first sees Xander, like real world Xander, she's like, Xander, you're alive. And then pretty quickly she figures out this is not her Xander. This is not vamp Xander. She's like, Oh, you're alive. And she's really disappointed. And then a little bit later when willow walks into the library and everybody is, thinks she's dead. She's like, geez, who died? And then she remembers all of a sudden, wait a minute, this is Sunnydale. This is a very real possibility. She's like, oh, oh, God, who died? <laughs> yeah. So I'm very speaking, interesting. Speaking of delivery of lines, we also get the first board now. Is that the um, first? I couldn't remember if that was the first. I'm pretty sure it's the first. Okay, that's awesome. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so... Um, one thing this is i don't know if this counts as a nitpick i'll call this a nitpick um in uh season two episode 11 uh ted when when the school when people think that buffy killed like buffy is treated like jack the ripper for even just the possibility that she may have killed her mother's robotic boyfriend <laughs> like everybody looks looks at her and she's investigated this is so interesting coming on the heels of my talk with James about bad girls and consequences, because in that episode, we, uh, we made mention of the fact that, uh, police don't get involved with a lot of stuff in Sunnydale. We, there's not, there aren't a lot of times where this weird stuff happens and people's first thought is we should call the police or call 911. It doesn't happen very often, but in bad girls and consequences, it seemed like it was happening a lot. Um, and the same thing in Ted Buffy was Buffy has the police come in and, and uh, interrogate her about the death of Ted or whatever uh, and everyone in the in school looks at her like she's scary she may have killed someone anyways what I'm getting to is here in Doppelgangland there are literally dozens and dozens of people who witness firsthand they actually see with their own eyes a person who looks exactly like Willow Rosenberg walk into the bronze and rip the throat out of a girl right there in front of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and no police ever knock on Willow's door that we ever see. Nobody in school ever, ever comments on the fact that that Willow girl's weird. She ripped some girl's throat out with her teeth. <laughs> like, I don't know. That just never comes back as far as I'm aware. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I guess it's just the vampire effect. Yeah. Uh, as soon as someone sees someone supernatural, um, something supernatural they'll forget about it if it's 
if it's someone natural, mundane, killing someone else, they'll never forget about it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, so unless there's anything else you wanted to cover in this, we can move on now to enemies. We're good. Okay, so enemies, uh, we leave behind uh, most of the lighthearted stuff of Doppelgangland, and we dive right back into the horror show that is going on with Faith. Uh, so yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, actually, the, the first thing that strikes me when uh, looking at enemies is uh, Borean as his talents in, in, you know, playing Angel and Angelus as completely mm -hmm. separate beings. It's just, uh, wow. So I'm, um, I'm a big fan of Angel the show as well, but um, I'm not a big fan of Angel the character as long as he's on Buffy. I think I'm he... Exactly yeah. in the same place. I'm right there with you. He gets more interesting once he gets his own show. Um, but um, Angelus in that episode, or, well, pretend Angelus, but still, wow. Um, so that's my first thought. Um, my other thought is that, um, I mean, it's still kind of a, an episode um, focusing on the theme of the double. Uh, in another way, you have Buffy versus Faith uh, and Angelus versus himself. Uh, over Angel, Angel versus Angelus, um, and uh, yeah, I noted some interesting things. Um, so yeah, um, both struggle with their dark halves, um, and if you go into the episode with the idea that um, that Faith is Buffy's id, so to speak. Um, that she's a part of Buffy that Buffy doesn't want to acknowledge. I don't think that's completely true uh, in general, but I think it helps interpret some scenes. Um, and we can get a lot of mileage out of this in that episode. Um, and notably, the, the parts where Buffy and Faith are together and they react differently, or then just, okay, first scene, so, um, cinema, mm -hmm. Buffy and Angel are coming out of the movies, and they probably, they weren't, they saw something that they weren't <laughs> expecting to see. Uh, something very, something very artistic, yeah. Yeah, and that's gotten them riled up, um, and so they're trying to, you know, uh, to the line and be all, um, you know, um, do the willpower thing, as Faith puts it. Um, and right at that moment, Faith just bursts in uh, into the scene. And uh, that's, you know, and, and she acts a lot more, you know, um, handsy with mm -hmm. both, both Buffy and Angel, I think. And that's, wow, that's like almost like a manifestation of, you know, Buffy's desires come physically appearing on screen. Yeah. Um, and you've got that other thing reversed uh, when Buffy's uh, no Faith has slain that demon, that uh, demon who's got the books, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty grisly fight. Um, yeah, I want I want to talk about that fight and the the repercussions of that fight uh, yeah. because it's the. Um, 
I feel like this is all text. This is all on screen for everybody to see. But I know I know from experience there are some people that just refuse to see any sort of shades of gray to the character of Faith. They feel like she is just the Dark Slayer who has lost her way. But in that in that fight and the effects that it has on her later, um, I think it's pretty clear that Faith is still struggling. She is still capable of being horrified by what she does. That's the... To the best of my knowledge, that's the first time we see her in a fight with a demon or vampire or whatever, a demon in this case, where she is visibly shaken. Um, like, like she's up, she's upset and I feel like she's visibly shaking, shaken and you can kind of hear a quaver in her voice or whatever after that fight. She wasn't expecting it to be that that bloody and like she stands up and she has literal blood on her hands and she's disturbed by it. I agree. I think uh, there are kind of mixed messages here, because as you say, she's shaken. She seems shaken. Um, the fight is bloody, brutal, and uh, the demon is humanized. I mean, he's you know he seems like a you know nice guy or sort of. I mean, he's not a brutal demon who would rather engage in violence. He's trying to make a deal, and Faith just betrays him and stabs him. Uh, he's wearing. Um, you know, he's wearing very human clothes, right. uh, that sort of thing. So, um, and she does seem shaken. She has blood on her hands. Um, and on the other hand, I feel like that point is under undercut, uh, undermined, uh, rather. But the fact that uh, right after that is played for uh, betrayal, like she uh, acts shaken when she goes to see Angel, um, to try to gain him to her cause. Yeah. Um, so you can sort of doubt it all. <laughs> well, except I agree with you because in my notes, I, I like made note of that. Uh, but then my very next note is because I, I, I think it goes from that to, uh, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Audio went weird for a second. Uh, I think it goes from that back to Buffy and faith. Um, tracking down the demon with the books uh, and they go to the, his hotel, his motel room or whatever. And faith has to pretend she hasn't been there before. And she has to act surprised when she, when they find the body or whatever. But so my note was that even though she was apparently putting on an act when she went to angel and she was pretending to be all delicate and traumatized by, uh, by having killed uh, when her and Buffy go back again, I, I feel like she, seemed like she was genuinely upset to be back at the scene of the crime, basically. Uh, I agree. Um, that's also what I wrote down. Um, that's where I was going by saying you have this scene in the cinema when she, you know, uh, she comes in and she kind of upsets uh, Angel and Buffy's dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but And they act as sort of two parts of the same mind but different parts uh, pulling in different directions, or you could see it that way. Um, and I feel like the crime scene is the same because they get here is Faith is obviously uncomfortable. She wants to go away. She's like, there's nothing more to see here. Let's just go. Um, so she's trying to run away, and Buffy is kind of, you know, pulling her to stay and look at the body. Um, and that is the super ego, or like the, in a way, the, the more moral part of faith uh trying to hold her back in yeah um yeah so we need to talk um 
since we're talking about how faith is uh, the super ego of uh, Buffy or whatever, the, the dark shadow, obviously, yeah. obviously we're going to need to get to the whole fake Angelus thing. But before we get to that, I want to commit, first of all, commend you on pronouncing it Angelus. <laughs> and also I want, I want you or any of my listeners to correct me. This has been kind of a running joke on the podcast that, that I, I know him as Angelus, but up to this point, everybody, including in, I believe this episode, Angel himself pronounces it Angelus until, huh. until Wesley, my beloved Wesley Wyndham Price Unless unless I've missed it somewhere, Wesley Wyndham Price is the first person in the history of Buffy the Vampire Slayer to correctly pronounce Angelus. Well, honestly, um, yeah, I never paid attention to that. And the reason I pronounce it Angelus um, is that in the show Angel, uh, in season four, you know, they turn him back into Angelus. And uh, you have that Wesley, precisely Wesley, saying... So there's, we need Angel, no, we need Angelus. Uh, and you hear it so much in the previously on Angel that it's just gotten stuck into my ear. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Angel the series, and, and on that show they always refer to him as Angelus, and so that's why I've. it's been kind of irritating me going back to Buffy and hearing early in the show how they kept pronouncing it Angelus. So I just wanted to point out that, that uh, you've been saying it that way this whole time, and... Uh, as far as I know, Wesley is the first person to call him Angelus. So, uh, anyways, uh, you, so you talked about the scene when Faith kind of interrupts them as they're coming out of the out of the cinema, um, yep. and uh, let's talk about what it's like for. Uh, well, let's. You mentioned David Boreanaz's performance. Uh, when he is angel pretending to be angelus one of one of my favorite things to watch actors do is play one character pretending to be another character um i mean we just had uh allison hannigan doing that although it's a little bit of a cheat since they're technically the same character but um yeah. anyways this you is another get, you get is, a lot of that on dollhouse yeah 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 uh dollhouse and then uh of course outside of the whedon verse there was uh um Oh my gosh, what uh, the Clone Club? What is the not Black Mirror? Oh my God, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. I'm gonna have to edit this out so I don't sound this dumb. But uh, with, with no with uh, Tatiana Maslany, um, Black it, crap. Anyways, the show where Tatiana Maslany plays multiple clones of the same person, and each clone has a different different personality. Um. I, it's killing me that I'm drawing a blank on that. At any rate, doesn't ring the bell. At, at any rate, uh, David Boreanaz uh, playing Angel, pretending to be Angelus, is kind of a revelation. And uh, I, I agree with a lot of people where um, the best Angel is when he's Angelus. The best Angel is not when he is like super broody and depressed and <laughs> quiet and uh, never never comfortable around people. The best Angel is yeah. when he gets to sort of come alive uh ironically yeah yeah that's true and i think um so what i find really interesting is that when you think about um well we're going back to vampire mythology but 
um, you know, is Angelus inside of him all the time, um, if that's the being, the demon, that angel, uh, the soul, has been holding back, then is he pretending to be Angelus, or is he just letting him out, um, in a way? Um, and, I mean, it, it may sound the same, but that's pretty, that's pretty different, be, because if he is letting them out, um, and just actually unleashing this beast, um, he, I think that his guilt, um, the fact that he's always wondering, oh, okay, am I going too far? Um, I'm sorry I went so far, Buffy. Mm-hmm. Um, that just makes more sense because uh, he has this constant sense of, you know, unworthiness uh, due to um, housing and jealous um, and the, the need to better himself, to redeem himself by just uh, shedding that part of him. Um, and so that's something that inside of him that he's ashamed of, and so it, it must have been hard for him to let him out, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's clearly... So I often look for... I, I, I admit my faults. I admit my biases, and I often... Uh, am looking to find reasons to be kind of frustrated with Buffy, the character. Um, And so there are rationalizations, there are explanations and and good reasons why Buffy kind of freaks out the way she does at the end of the episode. But I'm still frustrated by the fact that, that uh, Angel had to go through what you just talked about. Angel had to pretend to be Angelus, which is his own greatest fear. Um, he had to act that way in front of Buffy because Buffy asked him to. And because she had to watch him do that, she's now upset and doesn't want to be around him anymore. So, you know, I, I I often have to remind myself that she's meant to be a teenage girl and they don't, they're not always rational. They don't always make the best decisions. Their paths aren't always clear. Um, but it still yeah. it still frustrates me to watch her do that. Like he did that because of you, and it tortured him just as much as it tortured you. But now you're the one that gets to be upset and don't want to be around him anymore. Yeah, but I think that's it. It's because she's um, she doesn't have the maturity um, yet, and she's she's overall jealous person. You see that in earshot. There's the whole Othello theme and uh, right. jealousy, and and you know, and she's. Um, so there's the fact that she saw him be Angelus and uh, that of course reminds her of terrible terrible memories and wounds from season 2 but there's also the fact that she is comparing herself to Faith and wondering was he tempted Um, right and that's that's what I wanted to get to when you earlier were talking about how um Buffy gets to see Faith as the the part of herself that she wants to repress or whatever, and she has to pretend to be chained to a wall watching Faith, who she is afraid of becoming, being with her boyfriend, the evil version of her boyfriend, in a way that she can't allow herself to be. Yeah, no, I get how super twisted and dark and <laughs> and how that could mess with your head. Um but yeah, yeah, so I kind of I kind of wanted you to talk about all that, all the stuff of uh, Buffy having to watch the dark version of herself be with the dark version of her boyfriend. 
Um, well, it's definitely a tough experience. Um, you know, it's it's true that um, so faith is. Um, you can see that, uh, as you said, as you put it very well, Buffy is afraid of becoming faith, um, and um, as a mirror of that, Buffy uh, faith wants Buffy to become like her, um, and she says as much. She's like, okay, everyone wants me to be like Buffy and toe the line, but. Has everyone asked uh, how you sh- could be more like me? Yeah. Um, and uh, when she says that, uh, well, you just watched it. I think it's consequences. Or um, she says, you mad at me because you know uh, you could act like it. you know it could be you. And Buffy punches her. Right. Um, so that's really something that strikes a nerve with Buffy. Um, and um, well. Uh, yeah, actually, so so, as you said, dark version of Buffy being with the dark version of Angel and being um, together in a way that Buffy uh, would like to be with more you know, more contact, more uh, less restraint. Um, that is a yeah, that's a very good point. I I hadn't formulated it that way, but yeah, um, I think it's a great great thought. I, I haven't uh, I haven't jabbed at Xander uh, for a little while. I feel like <laughs> yes. I've given I feel like I've given Xander a pass for quite a few episodes now. So I, I just want to point out that uh, after so very recently having been having had his life saved by Angel when Faith was choking him to death in the motel room, uh, like Angel is the one that bursts in and saves his life. Uh, all it takes is Angel pretending to be Angelus to punch him once for Xander to go all grade school and say, I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. And I'm loving the fact that, that I get to tell you I told you so. Oh, yeah, he's petty. <laughs> yeah. So Xander still still capable of being a dick. but Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I listened to your episode about the Zeppo. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> But I, I think, in a way, Xander is definitely problematic in a lot of ways, and yeah. um, he's kind of—he lacks maturity, um, and in a bizarre way, he shows it sometimes where uh, when others lack maturity. Um, but I think that's also what's interesting with him is that he's such a deeply flawed character with very visible flaws. Um, and um, and the show makes his flaws. Uh, I mean, he never. I feel like he never really gets an episode where his flaws are addressed. Like Xander, you should stop doing that. You need to change. Um, the show is not more like moralizing him for that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not a. That's not a verb, but whatever. There, there's. <laughs> There's like maybe one instance in season six and or seven each where someone starts to maybe call him out for something like the whole uh, kick his ass. Like when when Xander oh, yeah. says kick his ass, I think that gets called back in season seven, but it's really a throwaway mm. line and he and and they gloss right over it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. To the, be- to yeah, the best of happens? my knowledge, to the best mm. of my knowledge, Xander never really has to get called on the carpet for his crap but 
so yeah, so maybe that's what frustrates you and uh, several other fans that um, have the same opinion about Xander. Me, yeah, I, I think that makes him, you know, it's interesting to see such an obviously flawed character. Um, and I mean, flawed. He's flawed not in a, in a rugged anti-hero, I have <laughs> deep, deep issues way that could have make him seem more glamorous. He's flawed in a teenage boy way. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. But definitely the show could have had someone call him out more often. Yeah. And generally when they do call him out, they're not saying um, you're being problematic. They're saying uh, you're being obnoxious or talking too much. Uh, let, let Giles do the exposition and shut up for a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um... All right, I, we, we can probably move on. Unless, uh, is there anything else about uh, enemies that we needed to address? Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about something. I'm not sure okay. I noticed it right, but um, I've been paying attention to the music in that episode. Okay. And um, in the scene that uh, where uh, Faith tries to seduce Angel and gets close to him, um, I was perking up my ears and I was like, "Wait, is that?" Is that the Buffy Angel theme? And uh -huh. it's not. It's not. Okay. But but it uh, it's it has that same feel. It has the same violin and uh, high piano notes. Um, and I think it might be some inverted version of the song, or it definitely has that atmosphere. Um, so I was thinking, huh, that's interesting. So dark Buffy in a way with Angel, they played on the uh, on close your eyes. Um, but what really uh, caught my attention is that at the end of the episode, when Buffy comes back and there's a rift between them, um, so she's been shocked, she's jealous, the same music plays as before, as when Angel and Faith met. Um, and when she leaves and he asks, are you still my girl? And she says, always, there you have like three or four notes of the actual Close Your Eyes song, and I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Huh. Uh, yeah, I confess I wasn't uh, paying close enough attention to uh, the music playing, but now I will have to go back and check that out. Um, yeah, I feel like I, I, should, uh, I should go through the... Um, I should go through the Slayage things and see if uh if steve halfyard ever wrote anything huh. about this because she's done all all sorts of stuff on the the music of good idea buffy but um okay uh move on to earshot sure okay so the the first thing the first obvious thing about earshot is this is the episode that was almost never seen <laughs> this is the episode that right. uh, was originally uh, scheduled to air on April 27th, 1999, uh, but that it was exactly one week following the um, Columbine High School shooting. And so the network decided that they would, uh, originally they were just going to, I think they were just going to postpone it for a couple of weeks, but it ended up getting pushed off until September 21st, which I believe is the week before the next season aired. So it was quite a long time. So basically... For people who are watching the show for the first time now and watching these episodes in sequence, just imagine going from enemies into 
what is the next choices. episode choices uh, without the context like like watching earshot now you may think it's kind of just a standalone sort of monster of the week kind of episode but there are stuff like it addresses things that happened in the episode before it and so there, there's stuff that you don't have context for that happens later in the series or later in the season yeah um, that's true uh and uh, unless i'm mistaken that was also the case of um Graduation Part Two was uh, postponed, but that it's not as noticeable because it's the, it's the finale anyway. Right. Um, yeah, and but, I think it, I think it was it was it wasn't postponed for quite as long a time, was it? I think it was. Uh, no, probably not. Maybe just a week or two. I can't remember. But at any rate, so the reason obviously that this was uh, that they thought that this would be and correctly, like don't get me wrong. They shouldn't have aired this the week following the Columbine shooting, Uh, but this episode appears at least to present a situation where there's going to be a school shooting. Um, And in fact, and in fact, there's uh, there's kind of a really disturbing scene where where why can't i think of anyone's name all of a sudden oz who typically gets to be like amusing and sardonic when he says stuff like this uh in uh, in the context of this episode and and the real world uh that it played in when he says some when he on the subject of school shootings and he says it's bordering on trendy at this point yeah like when that line was written and when uh when the character when the actor delivered that line i'm sure it was meant to be the typical sort of sardonic witticism from Oz, but it's really uncomfortable to hear that line. I agree. It sounds really sinister. Yeah. Uh, In a way, well, that's the way I've sometimes been feeling reading American news for the past years. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I I mean, I knew like going into the rewatch, I knew and remembered that it has been postponed for that reason. uh, But I, I felt okay. So there's Jonathan with a with a gun in school, uh, and I didn't remember those lines, those remarks where they basically joke about it. And it, I agree, it just doesn't go over well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I had forgotten. My memory is terrible for those who haven't figured that out yet. But um, I didn't remember in 1999. Like I, I associate Columbine High School with the big shooting that sort of that made people think of school shootings as something that's got that's gotten sort of trendy at this point like like his line it's weird to me going back and imagining that this that this is an episode filmed before Columbine that was already trendy yeah and there were already enough school shootings that they wrote this joke into the episode so yeah that was a little weird for me i didn't remember it being that much of a thing before columbine but at any rate um it's also interesting that previous guests on this podcast we've talked about how weird it is to see episodes where uh the police show up at sunnydale and and start shooting at students in school or whatever. Like there was an episode where uh, one of the assassins that was sent to, to kill Buffy is disguised mm-hmm. as a cop and is shooting in the school. Oh yeah. And we were like, that's really weird to see now, 20 years later. Um, yeah. But 
Anyway, anyways, Jonathan, Jonathan in a clock tower with a high power rifle uh, is a pretty uncomfortable thing, regardless. But in high, with hindsight, it's it's even more so. So trying to trying to remove ourselves from that. What did you think about this episode? Um, well, whenever I think of earshot, um, the <laughs> The first scene I see, for, which for me is the central scene in the episode, is the one uh, when they're all in the library and Buffy's reading their thoughts. Because mm-hmm. uh, we get a fascinating bit of insight into each character. Um, and I think that times like this, uh, scenes like this, is when Buffy is at his, uh, Buffy the show uh, is at its best. It's just like characters... Um, the characters we have grown to, to know and love uh, displaying sides that we already know too well or that we didn't know enough and just it's just pleasant to see. It's very rewarding. Um, uh, other than that, so uh, it's an episode that I've always thought was good or interesting, but um, re-watching it, for this podcast led me to uh, try to analyze it more systematically um, and I kind of noticed things that I hadn't before so thank you um, so yeah and I think I would say the main theme um, which is interesting in also uh, as it relates to the rest of the series uh, is connections and empathy um, I mean it's obvious due to the telepathy but um, when I, you know, there's kind of in the whole show a dialectic of uh, regarding the character of Buffy um, of isolation and connection mm-hmm. because um, the isolation of the Slayer is her curse. Um, and uh, in, it's emphasized in the episode. She can't go to the basketball game and she's sad um, because all her friends are going. Um, but on the other hand, Buffy is special as a slayer because she has friends, ties to the world, uh, and that helps her succeed. Um, and I think that episode is important for her to, um, because we see her grow into that those ties and that empathy, um, and in the same time, the isolation is always present in the background. Um, because when she gets too much empathy, so to speak, she has to shut down. Um, so yeah, I, and I feel it's also, you know, uh, Buffy, the show, can be taken as a um, an insight into what it means to grow from a teenager into an adult, right? Um, and I think that's, first off, getting over yourself in a way, like... Um, like she tells Jonathan, um, realizing that, I mean, you're unique, but everybody else also has problems, um, is one part of growing up and uh, forming connections is another. Um, And we see Buffy kind of uh, going back between isolation and too much empathy, uh, struggle to forge an identity, which is at once uh, herself and distinctly herself, uh, but also caring and open to the world. Yeah, very well said. 
<laughs> That's great. So I, I, uh, I have kind of mixed feelings on this episode, um, because and sp- uh, specifically on Buffy in this episode, uh, because I, uh, if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, you may be aware that I have been tracking the sort of social abuses, the, the high school bullying that uh, the character of Jonathan goes through. <laughs> leading up to this oh um it just it's it's just a hot button issue for me and i was kind of worried about getting to this episode because i couldn't remember um i didn't remember exactly how it played out like i i knew that jonathan's thing was that he was going to kill himself not that he was going to go on a shooting spree but i still i couldn't remember like how graphic it was going to get or how um how much how careful I needed to be about uh, feeling sympathy for Jonathan. I am relieved to say that by the end of this episode, I'm still able to feel sympathy for Jonathan and for the path that he's gone through. Um, But also I couldn't remember how angry I was at Buffy. Um, Like I, I vaguely remembered that her confrontation with Jonathan was really obnoxious. Like I remember feeling like she was much more aggressive and, and less sympathetic to Jonathan than I thought she should be. And that, that wasn't really the case. I feel like she was firm. She was stern with him, but I feel like she also, uh, was a little bit empathetic. So I'm relieved that Mm. she, that I had misremembered how, how tough love she got with him. Yeah, that is exactly tough love. I, uh, I think it comes off as pretty uh, pretty harsh what she says to him. Um, she's basically, you know, uh, like I said, get over yourself. Uh, you're not the only one who's important and has problems. That's harsh. Uh, but um, I, I thought that, and then uh, I remember that at that point, um, when she gives him that talk, uh, she still doesn't know that he's only up here to kill himself. And she probably thinks he's going to commit mass murder, right. which might justify some anger on her part. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, but actually I, I did think, um, I'm happy that you bring up Jonathan and empathy for him, uh, because I did think a lot about Jonathan, um, watching this episode, and I realized, um, well, this also is a step for him, and his character arc is much simpler than main characters because we see him less often. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still very much there, and there's evolution. And um, I would say, so Buffy's trying to teach him that everybody has issues and that he has to work through them (laughs) Um, you know, steadily without some grand gesture um, to make it all go away. And that's a lesson he obviously didn't learn then because in <laughs> right. Superstar, he uh, he does it again and again, season six, the trio. Uh, but by the end of season six, in Grave, um, he's starting to, you know, uh, own up to what he's doing, take more responsibility. Like he's telling Andrew, no, okay, so we go to prison and we serve our time. Right. Um, and, um, but when when he sees the opportunity to escape to Mexico, he does. Um, and 
at the end, I feel like, um, you know, well, your the podcast is called Conversations with Dead People, and so spoilers ahead is the episode <laughs> where Jonathan dies. Um, yeah. And that very scene um, is an emotional moment for him because um, he's thinking of, about his former classmates and uh, his locker number and what they thought of him. And he says that even if they don't think about me, I still care about them. Uh, and watching Earshot made me think about that and the meaning of that. And that is actually like he finally had it. He got it. He grew into empathy and his own identity while caring about others. And that is the precise moment he uh, does that character growth is the moment that he gets killed. And I think that's kind of tragic. No, I, I completely agree. I think Jonathan's whole thing, even I, I'm I, again, I'm relearning about the show as I revisit it for the first time in X number of years. So there, there may be some pushback on this and I may, have to reevaluate what I'm about to say once we get into the season, into the later seasons. But I, my memories of um, Jonathan, even when he's a member of the the trio, even when he's one of the bad guys, uh, is a lot more like the kind of empathy or sympathy that I have for Faith. Where Faith, they they both are doing terrible things, but I can almost understand how they got there and why they're doing it. And it doesn't necessarily excuse what they're doing, but I'm less comfortable with just uh, saying they are bad guys. They need to be put down than maybe I think a lot of people are. I don't know. We'll see when we get there. Maybe Jonathan goes more fully black hat than I remember, but no, not really. Actually, well, regarding faith, um, I used to be one of those people who think she's evil and the dark half of the Slayer. The, on my first uh, watch through, which uh, was, as you might recall, when I was like um, 11, 13, yeah, yeah. From, thir from 11 to 14 or something. Um, and actually, I, um, the double episode when she comes back in season four mm -hmm. is probably my favorite. Um, it's hard because season four has a lot of great one-offs, but uh, they're among my favorite episodes of season four. And it's not until I watched Angel and saw uh, Faith on <coughs> Angel season one and the completion of her character art that I fully got her. And now I think she's fascinating. She's, it's one of the best written arcs in the series. Um, Completely agree. And as for as for Jonathan, no, well, in season six, I'd say he's more um, like he's more going along uh, because he wants to belong and he's found a group. But even then, he's the one that uh, you know is questioning what he's doing and he's the moral compass of the group. He's trying to stop it from going too far. So yeah. I think you can sympathy is definitely justified. Yeah. Um, so yeah, poor Jonathan. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Poor Jonathan. Um, oh, anyways, I'll just kind of finish out when I, when I was saying I have mixed feelings on this episode because of that. Oh. I, I, uh, I already talked about how I couldn't remember how dark Jonathan went. And I, I thought I remembered Buffy being a lot harsher than she was. And so I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, but then I am, I am once again, uh, 
frustrated by kind of where I know some of this stuff is going. Uh, and, and I've had, I've had other guests on the show try to talk me down from this. And I've, I, anyways, it's a thing I'm dealing with. I'm in therapy guys, <laughs> but um, is the notion that uh, some of the lessons that Buffy seemingly learns, like in this episode, um, I mean, to the show's credit, it tells us at the very end of the episode that Buffy, you know, gave a good show of being empathetic and, and sort of trying to understand where Jonathan was coming from and being as supportive as she could while she was also talking him out of killing himself and so on and so forth. But then there's the joke at the very end where she's like, God, no, I wouldn't go to the prom with him. He's so short. I'm not saying Buffy. Buffy. I'm not saying Buffy. Exactly. So yeah. it still allows her, the show acknowledges that she is still to a certain extent, shallow high school teenage girl. Um, yeah. But it's just, I will forever be frustrated by the, the path that our heroes go on. Uh, they go from being the sympathetic outsiders who were themselves picked on to being the, the cool kids later in the series who then pick on other people. And so um, like in later seasons, the, the attractive people, the, the cool kids are the ones that are allowed to have shots at redemption. Whereas the, the outsiders, the geeks and the losers uh, continue to pretty much just be represented as stupid or pathetic or whatever. Although you did just point out that Jonathan, albeit very, very late and at the last possible second does get his, his shot at redemption. So, yeah, no, I I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, I think that's a, in general with Buffy. Um, I think there's a a really like, I mean the the writers kind of um, oh, what's the word? They, they kind of own that focus towards the main characters mm-hmm. to the point that um, some some minor character death are played for comedy in the way that a major character would never be. Right. Um, in, in season seven, I think you have like when Buffy is school counselor, um, there's a guy who just stresses out so much that he's, ex- he explodes. Uh, and it's a, it's a throwaway joke. Yeah. And you know, yeah, you have that kind of weirdness. Um, I mean, it's just a show. We really should just relax, <laughs> but it's not just a show. Yeah. Damn it. It's Buffy. Um, no, uh, but about what you said about, you know, going from underdogs and, uh, outcasts to people in power. Um, the main characters of Buffy, I mean, um, I think there's definitely something here and that's actually, I mean, I don't want this to be a shameless plug, but <laughs> coming back to, to the article about war and hierarchy, I think that is one of the problems of Buffy going into the later seasons is that she has to actually, um, whereas in season one, two, three, she could just, you know, blow off figures of authority. Now she has to be one. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So back yeah. to your shot. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, that, that's a, actually a great, I didn't really have anything else to say on Earshot, um, unless you do. So that's kind of a great out. Um, I mean, there, there's plenty of humor in this episode that we kind of have just glossed over. We're, I, I don't want to run too much longer, but I mean, we do get some great comedic, mo- 
comedic moments between Giles and Wesley. Yeah. With the whole, oh, yeah. I was just filling Buffy in on my progress regarding the research on the Ascension. And Wesley's like, <laughs> and oh, what, what took up the rest of the minute? <laughs> Touche. Touche, yeah. It's good stuff. But, yeah. Um, um, so um, I have two very minor things to add. Okay. Uh, so the first one is um, just I noticed um, in uh, cinematog- cinematographically, is that a word? S- or yeah, yeah. Cinematically, whatever is uh, the shots where um, Buffy, you know, um, tries to go to Angels to read his mind, uh, and she bursts in and she opens the curtain and yeah. the, the sun, you know, powers into the room. And that's in the uh, in the credits, by the way, um, I think. Um, and so um, an angel has to recoil because he's uh, he almost got burned. Um, I think that's a powerful shot because um, it's kind of the idea also that um, intimacy and connections and empathy are great, uh, but sometimes they're too close, being too close, fusion is not possible and it is going to burn you, literally, in the case of Angel. That's great. Uh, That's great. See, and, see, I also like that shot, but my thought was, why was he even walking towards that curtain if it opens up into a sunny courtyard? <laughs> like, like where was oh, yeah, he? Fair enough. <laughs> where was he going? But anyways, no, I like your read better. Continue. And, and so, um, and yeah, and I was reminded of that scene because we get a similar shot later uh, when Buffy just uh, jumps in the, the clock tower with Jonathan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the windows are barricaded and she just, breaks them and break th- breaks through and jumps in. Um, and um, I thought, oh, maybe so. Maybe she did reach something. Um, maybe she did, you know, uh, reached across uh, Jonathan's barriers and touched something. And so maybe that, that was useful. Um, no, that's, that's good. I was trying to come up with a clever way of saying something about she's breaking through barriers. Like she can, yeah. she can see through the, the, blinds that people pull around themselves and she's breaking through barriers. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to play that game. And then, um, and so the last thing I wanted to add, which is really minor, uh, oh, actually two things, but I'm going to be quick. Uh, so first the negative, I would say my nitpick with that episode uh, is the lunch lady. <laughs> okay. it's, just, it's just random, you know. Uh, yeah. we, we don't know why she wants to kill all the students and I you know I, I would have been interested in uh, had her plight been more thoroughly explored right uh, so yeah that was um, just felt kind of like a random resolution you know Xander just walks in walks in the dining hall and and sees her and you know it's episode over uh, but uh, and yeah the last thing was about Willow, because we started with Willow and we can end with her. Um, I always find it interesting how in moments where Buffy is incapacitated, um, Willow steps up and becomes the leader, sort of. Um, She does that when Buffy goes catatonic at the end of season five. um, And by then she's more affirmed. You know, she's a witch. she, She orders people around. But here... There's already a good hint of that when she she's like, okay, Xander, Cordelia, 
children, stop fighting. We have something to do, so we're going to do it in my way, and you go do that, and you go do that. And I think it's a glimpse of the real power that um, and charisma that she's been holding back. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. Willow, she's gotten a couple scenes like that where, um, on, on the one hand, it's kind of played for laughs because you get to see typically timid willow standing up for herself and taking charge but it's also just great depth of character yeah so and it and it's also foreshadowing where she's going but uh god allison hannigan is great and we i i haven't even mentioned so uh wesley is is my number one favorite character in the whedon verse and um this, the behind the scenes stuff is this obviously is how uh, Alexis Denisoff who plays Wesley and Allison Hannigan who plays Willow it's how they first met and four years from the yeah. time of this episode they, they will marry they right. will be married and they uh, knock on wood thank God they are still happily married they are adorable I love them yeah dream couple dream couple I agree <laughs> yeah although I do have an I do have a bone to pick with both of them because they uh they got married. Their wedding was two days after my wedding to my wife. So we uh, oh. we actually went to Dragon Con and uh, personally handed a wedding invitation to James Marsters. <laughs> we invited him to our wedding. And we like to pretend that he would have attended our wedding if Allison Hannigan and Alexis Denisoff didn't have a wedding the same damn weekend. I'm sure he would have. Yeah. So just so you know, Allison, Alexis... We see what you did there, but anyways, I joke. I love them. So that was great. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for, um, I, um, I, I have no idea what time of day or night it is for you right now, but thank you for taking time uh, to be on my podcast. No problem. It's getting to be 10 PM. So it's still okay. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so I'll be, happy to join you uh in the episodes where i'm already scheduled and if you have any more openings that you want to fill you can always let me know and i will always be happy to come back awesome um yeah uh i will absolutely have you back and uh, you know don't wait for me if there's something coming up that you s suddenly feel passionate about talking just let me know and and you know, the schedule changes all the time so if you're interested in anything just let me know we'll see what happens um in the meantime, sure. I, I don't know. I give all my guests an opportunity to to pimp their stuff and to let people know how they how they can stalk them online. Uh, do you have a social media presence you want to put out there? Or? Uh, nothing of note. Okay. <laughs> Not really. All right. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, like I said at the top of the show, you've got um, that uh, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli project coming up. At oh some yeah, point. we have to talk about that. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Another yeah. time, I mean. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. I thought I thought you had a publication date you were going to uh, let us know about. But no, yeah, you and I definitely have to talk about that. And then uh, because I'm I'm friends with Ensley, I'm sure I will talk with him about uh, the project that you were also working on with him. But uh, that, that's a thing coming up. Anyways, yep. um, thank you so much for for coming on and i'd like to thank everybody at home for listening uh you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com uh, or you can subscribe to the show on itunes and while you're there please rate us or write us a review there are a number of other buffy and angel podcasts out there so any kind words that you could spare for us would really help us stand out from the crowd 
Uh, and if you have any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything that we've discussed, please join the conversation. Drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on the Facebook group, Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. Uh, next week, uh, Melanie Scala rejoins me. Uh, we will be discussing episodes 319, Choices, and 320, The Prom. Uh, so until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. There's a chair in my head In which I used to sit Took a pencil and I wrote We're following on in Now there's a key That I can't bear to cut out words I've got written. <laughs>